0: Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today our guest is Eric Mead. Eric Mead is Principal at the Whole Mind Strategy Group a consulting consortium based in Colorado in the USA through inclusive and innovative facilitation as well as by contributing his own insights based on experience and forward-looking perspective he accelerates the shift to a better world he's the author of reframing poverty new thinking and feeling about humanity's greatest challenge which won 5 book awards and Whole Mind Facilitation, How to Lead Workshops that Change People, Organizations, and the World. Welcome to FuturePod, Eric. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. So, Eric, question one. What is the Eric Mead story? How did you become a member of our Futures and Foresight community? Well, I guess those are...
1: Two slightly different and and related questions. The Eric Mead story is definitely, that question captures my interest because I've spent a lot of my free time over the past year putting on paper some draft of a memoir of a certain period of my life. And I've learned that there's what happens to us and then there's the deeper story that's happening. And that's really what you want to write about. And I'd say the Eric Mead story is... uh, maybe a redemption story. Maybe we're all in our own little redemption story, but that's uh, maybe that's the genre I would find. Just figure out life one, one step, one mistake at a time. And, um, and it's a work in progress. (laughs) And when I say that I'm talking about the memoir, the life and the uh, redemption, (laughs) if there's a genre to the Eric Mead story, maybe that's what I'll choose at this point. In terms of how I got into the futures and foresight community, I would say the first part of my life was really an experiment in having the wrong job. So I I paid for college with a Navy scholarship, ended up on a nuclear submarine as an officer um, tooling around the world's oceans, and then left that and went to get an MBA. ended up in China where I was traveling around hinterland factories making wooden toys and like rubbing my hand along the pieces to make sure they weren't too sharp or rough for a kid's hands, trying to talk to factories about improving their quality. And then I ended up, I was still in China, I was living in Shanghai, and I I had gotten married, I had a daughter, and my wife and I were out in the the park outside our apartment complex, pushing my daughter around in the stroller, she was a few months old, and we ran into a guy who lived in the same complex. His name was John. And we exchanged business cards when we met and he was an American and his business card said futurist. And I said, what the heck is that? And he told me about it. And it felt a lot like what I did in my free time for fun, but he was getting paid for it. Right. So we went out to a local Starbucks, not far from our apartment complex. And he told me more about it. And then... A little bit more serendipity. I had to leave China after you renew your visa a few times when you live there, you have to leave, come back in and you start the process again. So I had to leave um, China to get a new visa. And for some reason, most people just go to Hong Kong. For some reason, I decided to go to Washington, DC because I have friends there. And so I figured I'd take a trip to the US. And then I Did a little internet search of futurists and found out that the World Futures Society conference (laughs) in, this would have been 2008, was in Washington, D.C. the three days before I was going to be there. So I adjusted my ticket, went to the World Futures Society conference. John hooked me up uh, with a guy named Jim Burke. These are names you may know. Yep, Listeners may know. Great, generous people, all of them. And uh, John asked Jim to let me into an APF Meeting the day before the day of the start of the conference. That's right. Yep. So I went to this thing. I walk in. Everyone's a professional futurist. I'm just a guy who got off a plane. I took Peter Bishop's pre-conference course on intro, Intro to the Futures. And so that's what I knew about being a futurist. And then we did big introductions in the whole room. And I said, my name is Eric Mead. I'm a futurist. I live in China and I'm interested in psychology. And then at the first break, another generous uh, person named Jonathan Peck made a beeline to me. He was at the time president of the Institute for Alternative Futures and um, was working on a project in China, has a great interest in psychology. I spent four of the next five days after the conference in his office having great conversations. And by the time I went back to China with my new visa, I had a job offer to come to Alexandria, Virginia, and work at the Institute for Alternative Futures. Wow. So the hand of serendipity or grace or yeah, whatever it, it worldview is, you have has been active for sure in, in my life. I
0: mean, I mean, I've heard your story you know, many times across the microphone, Eric, but I've also had the same experience. I came out of academic economics business background. But the thing that struck me when I just went to the first conference and did my first thing was, and I keep saying this this amazing generosity amongst a field that, if I say we're marginal, we're marginal in the sense that almost no one's heard of us. You know, people are scratching around to try and make a living out of it. Right. And yet, within that, you know, our, the scarcity of what we do. There's this amazing, remarkable generosity where if someone says, hey, I'm doing X, people just – you get this fire hose of offers. Obviously, you had that. Have you got a sense of well, why that? I think the field of
1: futures or foresight is a home for a certain type of thinker, a, a certain type of person. It's not like you see a job ad for a futurist and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll give that a shot it's that you you find out that it's a thing and you're thinking well why the heck didn't i know about this sooner so i think it's probably more a home than it is just a business model and so when people find other people that yep. have that same inclination yeah. that's the priority is hey let's all let's stick together and and support one another
0: the first day in the classroom when i had richard slaughter in the first day, giving me twenty five books I noted to read, but the strong sense and feeling I had was i'd come home I'd come home to something that I didn't know that existed. I'd found my tribe, I think, which is also another line that came out of a recent podcast because I think what you've touched on quite rightly is that we tend to be outsiders and so we feel as though we don't belong somewhere, we're almost inside the outside the world, and yet when we find ourselves sitting on a table with people who don't look at you like you got two heads that we actually feel very generous and very supportive towards one another. I don't know. I think there's
1: another part of it, which is the recognition that the need is real. There's enough actual need to go around. It's not like there are three companies <laughs> that true. need to think about the it's future true. and and everyone else is doing just fine. So it's maybe it's a home first, a movement next, yep. and then the third is it's a way to make a living if you can figure that piece out. Right. So I moved to the U.S. I think it might've been on September 11th, 2008. Oh, we sold on. everything in our apartment in Shanghai. September 12th, we had a flight uh, to the U.S. We drove around the East Coast, picked up stuff I had in different locations. I My, my daughter, all of 13 months sat between us and the U-Haul truck. I think her unconscious mind might've thought I'd gotten a job as a a truck driver or something. Cause we were just on the road for a week. And then on the 22nd, I think it was, I started the new job and we were settled in, in Virginia. So it was a big change and really if I could look back how that happened, I think also um, there were a number of things that, that reminded me that I was a type of person that might like something like that. I remember the first time a European friend suggested a, I watched this video on (laughs) TED.com. So I think there's a point about the democratization of insightful thinking through the internet and other things where I, I was in this job and I'm, you know, looking at toys and traveling around and doing things that are very much not exploratory, big idea thinking stuff. But there were these little breadcrumbs that I found that led me back to, you know, this more cerebral, more exploratory creative kind of person that that i am so then finding that home i i was ready to recognize it when when i saw it
0: so i mean you did an mba you had the life experiences of both the military and the entrepreneurial spirit of china what What were the things you then started to deploy when you called yourself a futurist and you started to do this? Was it just going back into your bag of tricks that you had or was it about acquiring a new set of frameworks and tools? I think the first
1: thing was it was reawakening a way of thinking that I did as a kid and and a lot of futurists would probably tell the same story. The first futurist work I ever did that I could really call a futurist bit of work was when I was in college, I took a full year of British history. And the professor kept on reminding us that if you added a 100 years to a big event in British history, you would get a corresponding event in US history. Okay. And I thought that was pretty cool. If you look at the glorious revolution of 1689, add 100 years, you get our revolution in the US, you can play out the pattern of... The Napoleonic Wars. The British Army leads in defeating Napoleon and takes on this global hegemon role. And the U.S. after World War One, same thing. So that got me thinking. Okay, well, if we add a hundred years to American history, if there's this pattern, then we can start to d- develop the profile of the next global superpower. And so I played it all out and I came up with two candidates. I came up with Germany and Japan, which had the minor complication that whereas the U.S., for example, had won its war of territorial expansion, the Mexican-American War, Germany and Japan lost their wars of territorial expansion 100 years later. Uh, But hey, they were the candidates I came up with. And so I've always been I've been watching as the 21st century started what is Germany going to do? And what is the role of the EU? And is that pattern that I found as a 19 year old undergrad? Is there anything to that? So it wasn't so much about the tools. I'm, this may come out later as well. I'm a little bit agnostic when it comes to tools and frameworks. What I'm about is how do you spark the new thinking? So I like having tools. In in my toolkit, and I think "tool" is the right word to use for that. It's it's a tool to use for the job for which it is appropriate. But as I got into futures, it really was reaching back to the more creative pattern recognition kind of thinking um, that I did even as a kid.
0: I have to ask: At what point is there a pivot to your first book, which is the one entitled "Reframing Poverty"?
1: Well, I think the book is consistent with what I do as a futurist in that it is really a reframing. Okay. And it is a reframing from a long-term perspective. And I have a good friend here in in Colorado, a very smart woman and thought partner. And I got together with her and and just laid out, hey, here's what I want to say about poverty. And she said, it sounds like you're really reframing the whole issue. Mm -hmm. and. And I think that's, that's a large part of what I do with clients, whether I tell them I'm a futurist or not. It's having that big mental space, the openness to different perspectives to say, Hey, what would we find if we looked at it this way? Yeah. So what the book does, I mean, it's not at all a how to book about solving poverty. What it is, is a look at how we have thought about poverty. And if you write a book, you have to have a two by two framework. So I have a two by two framework (laughs) of the four prevailing views of poverty over the course of the last at least 500 years. And so my argument is we have those views compete with each other. There's one view, for example, that would be characterized by personal responsibility and these people need to you know get off the sofa and and go get a job that's one yep. view another view would be that it's largely systemic or all systemic and institutional and that could be around sp- forms of discrimination racism sexism it could be just generally a lack of jobs a lack of quality schools those types of things and those views are just consistently fighting with each other yep. and there are two other views but these four views if well-meaning sincere intelligent people have been arguing for these different views for 500 years or more, chances are there's some validity in, e- in each one. Yeah. So then how do we take the best parts and then not just allow for them all in kind of an ecumenical sense, but also how do we integrate them? And, and that's where I bring in some development psychology, some complexity theory. And I say, look, let's reframe poverty in a way that captures that long-term perspective and understands. One of the things I say in the book is that poverty is the initial condition of the human species. At one point, we were all roaming around hoping we could find some nuts or some berries or some game to hunt and eat. And when I do workshops on this, on the book, it's I I usually start with a little small group exercise. And the question is, who's the first person in your family line to get out of poverty and how did they do it? And what you find is, Everyone is connected to this, so it is the initial condition we all come from. Most folks don't have to look more back more than a few generations to see how they came out, and so the focus is still on this long-term trajectory of, okay, here's where we started, here's where we are now, here are all the factors that are in play, and then we can think about where we might like to go from here.
0: Thanks, Eric. I'm interested and I'm getting a sense here that we're starting to pivot into the how of what it is you do. Second question is where I encourage the guest to explain a framework or an approach that is central to who Eric Mead is and how Eric Mead does what he does. So what do you want to introduce now? You mentioned the book. Whole Mind facilitation, and and my company
1: is is called Whole Mind Strategy Group. So that is the concept I've really latched onto, invested in, as I've um, put myself out there with my own company. And the whole mind, that concept refers to what I call the three domains of the human mind. There's thought, there's emotion, and intuition. And if you picture those as a house... And imagine that thought and intuition are on the first floor, you know, above ground, and then the emotion is in the basement. Thought refers to all the cognitive models, what you know about an issue and how you've been addressing it. And it's really all of the ways that a person like you, with your background, your training, just your complete way of thinking, would address the issue. It is largely bound by experiences and what you've learned and and gone through. Intuition, that's the opportunity space of anything that anybody, regardless of their background, regardless of their training, might do in that situation. So one is very bound by your own experiences and, and knowledge and thought processes. The other one is just wide open. What would one do in this situation? Now, the problem in this house is the door between thought and intuition only goes one way. You can only you can go from intuition to thought, but you can't go from thought directly intuition. I can't walk in as a facilitator to a room and say, "Okay, I want to be creative or be intuitive and so the only way to get from the thought to the intuition to get from the bound thinking of the way we've always done it to the wide open space of what might a wise person do in this situation is the pass through the basement, and that's where the emotion is, so it is. Maybe articulating a, a vision that gets people's hearts involved that way. It might be working through some negative uh, emotions or um, trauma is a word that's thrown around yep. quite a bit these days, but I'll throw it around too and yep. people will know what I'm referring to. So just the negative experiences that have created burdens that we carry with us to this day and that shape our thinking. So getting through, that's how you come up into the intuition. and the point of facilitation or what I'm calling whole mind facilitation is to get people into that space and make those new connections. And then it's a little bit difficult. It's not as difficult as getting intuition, but to get from intuition to thought. So now you have these big ideas and you do have to create a framework and you have to name some priorities. So then you come out of the process with Something that you can act on that is translated into the world of thought, and you can measure it. You can develop the strategies and that kind of thing. So th- that is that's the overall philosophy. Maybe it's maybe more a philosophy than a framework, but that really guides whether it's strategic planning or organizational development or scenario work, whatever it is. That's the underlying thing for me. I define emotion as the felt experience. It's really in in the body. That's in what the body, yeah, um, is. It's these patterns or things we've picked up that that are are held in the body and then that they shape the thinking that we have about an issue. And in the Reframing Poverty book, I talk about how the reason I'm so focused on how people's families got out of poverty is because my suspicion is that that part of what shapes how we think about poverty now. So if your parents worked like crazy to get out of poverty, you may have a view that says, look, my parents said it, why don't you do it? Why don't you get yourself out of poverty? Whereas if your parents struggled and you could see them working so hard and they didn't get the benefits of their good work, um, you might end up with a different view. I think that the ability that futurists have to go into that emotional space and hold the space for those types of discussions that are so critical to owned and disowned futures, I think that's a really critical asset yeah. that we bring. One of the things I learned early on in my work as a futurist was you have to stand in it in front of people. I mean, no one bashfully calls himself a futurist. So you're already like yeah. you're already inviting, you know, yeah, the attacks and the questions about where's your crystal ball and all it, you're already in that space. Okay. So By taking it all the way and just allowing whatever conversation comes up, there really isn't a complicated science of, for example, how I facilitate a a meeting or a futures workshop. It really is just, can I go into the room focused on what I believe to be the best outcome that the group could achieve, very nebulously defined? And then just be there for things that are coming up. And there are so many workshops that have turned on just me naming something that happened. And in so many meetings that people have, they just don't name what happened. If someone says something rude or someone's really upset or someone's, um, you know, just can't see this future where that someone else is really excited about. And just the ability to recognize that's part of this process. And make space for that. I think that's the key. And then once, if you can establish that, then you can go into different emotional territory. I mean, probably at some point in a workshop, if it went in a certain direction, I would be thinking we're probably into space where a professional therapist might be better suited. But um, in many group situations talking about the future, it's just a matter of being honest, being open and being authentic with what's happening and naming it and by your words and deeds communicating that you just sincerely want the best for this group and that you have some confidence they'll be able to figure it out.
0: The thing that I certainly felt working with groups, Eric, was that often people have their own personal you know, trauma and baggage about either what happened to them in this job or their prior job or whatever else. And this seems to want to come out when we're talking about this thing called the organisational future, when in fact it's always people's futures, it's always personal, that there's no such thing as an organisation. It's just people and the futures that they're creating for themselves and the people they love and care for. I wonder whether it's the nature of those particular conversations we have about the futures that matter and the futures that we fear and the futures we hope for that actually bring the emotion into the room, almost guaranteed? I think I think they do. We are unique,
1: perhaps, among professional consultants or facilitators in that we're not bound to one particular approach or one way of viewing things. So we may be among the few people that organizational employees work with who can create the space for them to, to to recognize the truth that you just stated, which is, it's not an organizational future. It's people creating the, a future that works for them and, and for others. And it, as soon as it's just the organization, then the machines have taken over. I mean, it's yeah. it's just the, the structures are driving things and who wants to live like that? So our ability to just own that space of, look, we're all going to be, assuming we don't go extinct, we're all going to be here So let's have an honest conversation about what we'd like that to be like.
0: The third question is the one where I ask Eric Mead, citizen of the world, (laughs) father in Colorado, what are the futures that are emerging around you that you know are getting your attention that you're sensitive to that you're interested in both from a they might be interest through optimism hope and they may be interest through anxiety fear but what are the futures that are really occupying you as they start to emerge so i would
1: say that the over the past two years with covid and a couple months ago we were really worried about covid now in the u.s we're not talking about covid it's are we in World War Three? So yeah. um, it's been a tough couple of years. And during that time, I'd say my view of the emerging future has forked a bit. And when I was at the Institute and even after I left and, and went out on my own, I think I I very much had an optimistic, isn't the future going to be great? And Maybe we just have to go through some difficult birth pangs to get there kind of perspective. And I remember right after I started my own company, I did a guided visualization with Oliver Markley, another wonderful, generous person. And he he led me through this visualization. And I remember I pictured myself in this, it was like a gymnasium. It was like a middle school dance is, I don't know what that what that says about my emotional baggage from middle school dances, but it was a big gymnasium like that. And I found myself walking around little groups of people chatting and I would tap them on the shoulders and I'd I'd try to direct their attention upward. And it, it felt powerful at the time. And what I took from that was that my job was to inject myself into conversations to convey the possibilities, convey, look, there are good things happening. We need to to find them and we need to accelerate them. And that drives a lot of what you said about me in the introduction about accelerating the shift to a better world. And and that's very much in that spirit. So then the pandemic happened and it coincided with my midlife crisis. So that's convenient, but it makes it difficult to attribute things to one or the other. I'll turn 48 later this year. So I started to maybe let go to the extent that I was just a halcyon view of the future of, isn't everything going to be great? We just have to get through to it. I might've let go of that a bit. The future might've compressed a bit toward me as I just focus on, okay, how can I keep my family safe? And answer some of the questions that a lot of people were dealing with. But as I come out of that experience, I'd say I'm looking at the future three different ways. And I think they're all true and they need to be held. It's one of those paradoxes and you need to hold them all in your head at the same time. So there is the progress view. I think evolutionarily or the adult development and the integral, all that work has always been interesting to me. So there is that, and we can hold out that possibility. And I think there are also reasons for us to think about the future in terms of extinction. And I'm not going to make a scientific argument. I'm making more of a, a, a humanitarian or just a human argument that, It's worth thinking about how we would want to live if we knew that 20 years from now, 10 years from now, next week, we were going to be extinct. And I think we all deal with that in terms of our own mortality, but you can get through that by doing a great work of art, having kids. There are other ways that we think of creating a legacy that, so we're not really totally going away. But if you're thinking about nuclear weapons, if you're thinking about climate change, I think it's worth thinking about how you would live your life over the next X years if you knew that the whole species were going to go extinct. And how can you go extinct with dignity? How can you do that the right way? So that's the other view that I think is worth taking. And then the third view is related to a great quote from C.K. Chesterton, who said, I spent my life building my heresy only to find out it was orthodoxy. And that view assumes there may not be big fundamental changes, but we all are going through our own process, our own journey. And as we need new things, we create them. So this is where the patterns of every hundred years or just on an ongoing basis, every generation has its wars or its depressions or its different events. And It's just the world is as it is, and the future is more shaped by how people themselves are dealing with the things that are appropriate for where they are in their lives. So paradoxically, that's the one that maybe gives me the most hope, (laughs) because if you recognize that even all the stresses that we face now with war and climate change is a little unique, nuclear weapons certainly uh, is unique post-1945 compared to before, but there have always been issues. The U.S. is in a difficult place politically right now, heavily divided. The 1960s were also divided. There were other times that were bad. World War II was arguably worse than World War III has been so far. So the third view is making peace with the present in all of its messiness and destructiveness and also promise. So those are the three views that I'm trying to explore. How do you hold those three in mind at the same time? And just like you might do with a scenario project where you say, hey, let's come up with three or four scenarios, figure out what we would do strategically in each, and then the things that show up in all three or four scenarios we definitely need to do. How would you apply that to this as well and say, how would I want to act if I knew the entire species were going to be extinct 10 years from now? How would I want to act if uh, progress is happening and it's just painful and there really is this you know transformative future ahead of us? And how would I want to act if I just had to recognize that this is life and these are things that happen? And then from those strategies or actions that have been identified across those three futures, what's consistent? What serves you well in progress as well as it serves you knowing that You'd be extinct in 10 years. And, and how do we align ourselves around those actions?
0: Yeah, that those three are interesting. They've come up a couple of times, as you'd imagine, in the podcast. The second one, I think, uh, Riel Miller coined as, how do I be a good ancestor? His notion of, you know, if there'll be people coming after us, way after us? How do they look back to us as a species, as a generation, and feel some sort of gratefulness for them? But I wonder if all three of those are about coming up with a form of ethic of how you live in the face of the truth of each of them I think that's I think that's right and this is the part that we
1: probably shouldn't tell non-futurists <laughs> is that a lot of the value of exploring the future is figuring out how the heck you should act right now that you're yeah. not doing but it is a more personal ethic. I say it in the epilogue of the poverty book, I say something along the lines of we are all completely connected to one another and we are each fundamentally alone. And at least in, in the way I approach the problem, there is a driving toward, OK, how do I act? So it it is ethics at a, a very personal level because. A lot of these things are so far beyond my sphere of control. And I'm not saying that to be fatalistic. I'm just stating the fact that I have limited power to mitigate or reduce climate change. I have surprisingly little influence over whether or not Putin is going to use nuclear weapons. These are things that I cannot control. So it really drives to a personal ethic. And I think that touches on the point you made earlier about how organizational futures become people futures. Because when you inject a future, it it raises big questions and it drives people towards figuring out what their lives are about and what they want to do.
0: And is that the new thinking that sort of sits at the core of really the two books you've written and the work to this point, that the thinking is not just to be creative and novel and open, but to actually be deeply aware of the consequences of the decisions you can make. I don't know as if that's exactly how I'd frame
1: the work and the books. A bigger theme for me, and I started with the redemption story, when you asked, what, what's the Eric Mead's story? And I said, it's a redemption story. And I think that maybe where I am right now is that what we need is a lot more forgiveness about where we are And about the fact that all three of the futures I just described are possible. So I think about in the extinct future, (laughs) that seems paradoxical to even say, but the extinct future, I think about the movie don't look up. And I don't know how much (laughs) play that movie got in Australia. it's, It's built around some pathologies that are maybe uniquely American but the way they end that, where it is about, it's just expressing gratitude and forgiveness. And so, spoiler alert, all those things are useful in the other <laughs> in the other futures as well. And the world would be yeah. a, a much better place in the progress scenario or in the, this is just what life is like scenario. But I think that's the theme that I'm finding in my past writing, my current writing, And my work is how do you just create forgiving spaces and frameworks? Hey, all four views of poverty all have some validity. There's some forgiveness in that. So you don't have to argue. You don't have to be mean to each other about it. Let's just recognize that and pull out the best pieces. In a workshop, it's the same. Everyone's got different perspectives and great. And for good reason. And let's pull out the best pieces and let's stop viewing other people as defective versions of ourselves because they disagree.
0: question's the communication question. So how do you explain what Eric Mead does to someone who doesn't unnecessarily understand what it is that Eric Mead does?
1: I would say the reframing aspect of my work is one big thing. And people who have worked with me as clients, they will consistently speak to my ability to reframe the issues, the problems, in ways that generate new insights and, and new creative work to solve the problems or or mitigate. So I think having the mental space to reframe, I think that's something that I often use to describe it. And then the other thing, which I, I'd be curious if you've heard this from other futurists, is just, I often say that I go into rooms, I act like myself, and then Later on, when I send an invoice, people pay. <laughs> so uh, it's a nice gig, but I think so much of this work is just inherent in who we are, yeah. that it really is just, it's not what you know. It's not that specific tool. It's not that one article that you've read. It's that you're going in and, and you're creating the mental space and the emotional space, the intuitive space to have much more productive interactions with people. And to the extent that I can stand in that and do that, then I know I'll be successful. The only time I get concerned is when the ego creeps up of, well, am I going to look expert enough? And that's a dead end road right there.
0: I don't think anyone's actually described who they are and what they do quite as honestly as you described then. I mean, my sense there, if I play back what I think people are responding to when you do that, is the absolute Um, honesty, but you turn up as you are and from who you are and everything that comes with that, you start. And what you are encouraging people to do, whoever they are, is come up as you are. In other words, turn up as you are. Don't turn up as something you think you want to be or or I want you to be. Actually, we want you to be who you are, good and bad, and then let's use that as the fuel for how we work together.
1: I think that's spot on, Peter. And I had a mentor uh, named Doug Krug, still do have a mentor named Doug Krug. He's here in Colorado with me. But years ago, I, I asked him maybe how he achieved some certain outcome in some workshop setting. And He said, I just assume that people are going to show up as who they are. (laughs) And I go from there. And that's exactly what you just said. So to the extent that I can do that and be honest and even make mistakes. And if I say, hey, I just made the mistake or, hey, I don't know, you know, in a workshop, it's very powerful to say, I don't know what we should do right now. Does anyone have any ideas? (laughs) I mean, that's not my that's not my go to tool, but just the honesty and the authenticity in the moment to say, look, we just want to make things better. And, and how do we do it? I think that's key to it. I mentioned in the facilitation book that I noticed there are a couple of facilitations I did a number of years ago where I just made kind of silly errors, like early in the workshop. Like there was one, like I I got into talking about something and I forgot that we were supposed to go to a break. So someone had to raise their hand and say, can we know, have a break? <laughs> can we take a break? I got to use the rest of it. I was like, oh yeah, we're supposed to take a break. So what I found after a few of those was those workshops ended up being incredibly successful. And I just wonder if the fact that people are sitting in the room and they're thinking, oh, I can't make a mistake. And then the mm-hmm. dang facilitator makes a mistake and it just opens things up. So I think it really is about being who you are and and recognizing other people are going to be who they are and making that okay. I think mm-hmm. that's it's not rocket science, but It seems to work.
0: I'm going to say I agree, but I'm going to give you a but or an and, which is you're also evoking this notion of forgiveness. You're also modeling this aspect that there is no right, wrong in this. We're just doing our best and our best might actually get where we want it to or our best might take us away. But hey, it doesn't matter because if we forgive and forget and we kind of move on, then Everything contributes if we can be as generous and open to the process and the people in it. Yep, I think that's right. Okay, Eric, we're at the last question. I just want to, if I can, I'm, I love the house metaphor that we talked about early on. Intuition, it is a slippery, interesting, rich term i wonder if you can maybe just unpack what you think intuition is and how it operates in terms of both you know the the future's work the creativity and the emotion
1: yeah the intuition is tough and i think for a lot of people it is difficult to access individually and it it may be fundamentally difficult to access individually. And, and I do see that as something beyond the individual. in in the facilitation book, I'm very clear that the intent of facilitation, if you do it according to that book, is to get people together in a shared space where they're able to go into that together, because it is beyond anyone's individual experience or th- frameworks or thought processes. The big tip, the only time I underline anything in that book is when I say, don't use tables in your meetings (laughs) because it it is all about just a circle of chairs, human beings together, like we've been doing for millennia of sitting together in circle and, and trying to tap into that. Now, where it comes from, is it a part of the brain? Is it beyond any of us, beyond all of us? I think that all those answers might be true at the same time the mechanism might be through the brain and the source might be external i would say that i do operate as a futurist from a deep faith and it's i i won't name what the faith is in even if i could i would say that both the progress future that i described of hey everything's getting better and better that might be too juvenile approach to the deep faith that I'm trying to articulate now. And then the extinct future that I described kind of denies that faith. So, the future that maybe most consistent with where I am on the faith level is that future of look, the world is as it is. The real question is how are we making peace with it and with ourselves and operating in ways that shape our present. In a way that we'd like, and also at least a view to the type of future we're creating for ourselves and for uh, those that come later. So I will leave it as nebulous as it was at the beginning, because I don't know as if there's another option, but it is central to how I approach life and the future. And to me, that has to be an important part of it.
0: Yeah. Look, Eric, it's been great to meet you. I've had an absolutely great time talking to you about your work. Thanks very much for taking some time out to spend some time with the FuturePod community. Thank you. It's been a good time. And I understand you're coming down under Australia for the first time. So maybe uh, while this podcast has got a bit of currency, do you want to just talk a little bit about what you're coming down to Australia for?
1: Well, I'm actually coming down because my pandemic hobby was picking up the bass guitar I've owned for 20 years and had played about five <laughs> times. So I'm in a rock band that is, in quotes, maybe touring Australia. We uh, <laughs> have at least two gigs lined up next summer in in your part of the world. I'd love to make contact with folks if they want to talk more about the future. So maybe some people who hear this will uh, reach out and we can grab a coffee or something.
0: That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, I have the book Continues to go well, and, and I hope the trip to Australia works well. But thanks very much, Eric. Thank you, Peter. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.